The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine. And we will learn to utilize each of them to the maximum and learn to make decisions about what we want and how we want to feel. What a concept. And one we will explore today on The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. On our program, we'll address who you are, why you're here on this planet, how to go within, how to come to know what you believe and why. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon. We're broadcasting from Fountain Hills, Arizona, where it's an absolutely stunning day. And I'm so glad you're with us. Well, thank you, you so much. It's it's actually a beautiful day. Well, it's a beautiful evening here in London. So yeah, um, it's eight o'clock there. Yeah. Um, if you haven't been to the self improvement blog, go there now. Look at our guest bio, her picture. Uh, there's a video at the end. Her the links to her social media and to her website are there. Uh, you're going to want to know all of these. <clears throat> you know, it's rare these days that I have time to read a book from cover to cover, but I just did. I read every page and reread some pages of Behaving Badly. Uh, it was a great read for two reasons. You know, the information it shared is outstanding. And the use of the English language is so beautiful. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. That's, that's yeah. very kind. I, I love yeah. words. And when they're done well, I really relish it. Uh, more than that, I think this book is one of the most important books of our time, and you'll see why when we explore it a little bit more. And I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time introducing everything. I want to get right to it. Mm-hmm. Our guest well, I- today is Eden Collingsworth. I'm going to tell them how wonderful you are. <laughs> she's, a, right. she's a former media executive and business consultant. She was president of Arbor House Publishing and founder of Los Angeles-based monthly lifestyle magazine, Buzz, before becoming a vice president at Hearst Corporation. She served as the chief operating officer and chief of staff at the East-West Institute, which is a global think tank. After writing a a best-selling book for China for Chinese businessmen on Western deportment, that ought to have been a a staggering um, job. Well, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. <laughs> she launched Collingsworth and Associates, which is a Beijing-based consulting company specializing in intercultural communication. She currently lives in London, where it's now 8 o'clock in the evening, not 12 noon on the West Coast. She's the author of one novel and two works of nonfiction. And today we're going to talk to her about her recently published Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business, and I can't think of anything more contemporary or more important, and it's my absolute pleasure and honor to welcome Eden Collinsworth to the Self-Improvement Show. Eden, we're so glad to have you here. Well, thank you so much. It's it, it's a pleasure to, to, to have been asked to be on the, uh, the program, and I look forward to our discussion. I think it's a really important discussion, but I'm going to start where we always start on this show. Tell us about yourself. Who is Eden Collinsworth? <laughs> well, that's a, a, you know, that, that's a fairly wide-reaching question. I'm not quite sure yes. I have the, the I, I'm trying to sort it out still, even at my age. But <laughs> we I all know, are. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I don't know. Uh, I, one automatically reaches for um, you know, benchmarks to to describe oneself. Um, and inevitably, if if one has had a career, it's you know those benchmarks occur in that during the course of that career. And uh, but that I would like to think that that is not the total of who I am. But I have managed. I've always uh, felt the uh, the need for me, at any rate, to find interesting ways of earning a living. And, um, and so I began that at, uh, at 20, actually, I've been working for that long. And um, for the first 10 years of my career, I was a book publisher, you've mentioned that, but I was at a very early age, um, I was the president and CEO of this publishing company. And so I, I had uh, the great good fortune of that experience early in my life. Um, I then left it to start a magazine in Los Angeles, um, not having any experience whatsoever in magazine publishing or raising money, um, nor had I lived in Los Angeles, but I thought 
thought uh, that there would be an opportunity there, and it was a great adventure. And then um, the next 10 years of my career um, occurred within the, uh, the corporate offices of the Hearst Corporation, which is a is a international multimedia corporation. And I worked, um, you know, as a as an officer um, among um, pr- predominantly a, a, a male staff. And I must tell you that that is been the theme of, of, of my career and I, but things, things have changed. And so I don't know whether that's the, you know, that is an indication of, um, you know, times past or, or whether it, that it continues to be that women are not necessarily um, represented in equal measure, but I've always found myself in a predominantly male um, environment in terms of my work. At any rate, I was at Hearst for 10 years. And then in the most unexpected way, I was recruited to become the chief of staff of a global think tank. And I was based in um, Brussels and New York, but the offices were also in Moscow and Washington. And there was work in China. So I did a tremendous amount of travel. And I did that for about five years. It was fascinating, but I I had absolutely no personal life. I was moving around about 72 hours ahead of the news cycle. And um, so I decided to stay put. And I moved to China to write this book for Chinese on Western um, business uh, behavior or comportment. And while I was in China... Living among the Chinese for the first time, I'd I'd been in and out of China for some 30 years, but I'd never lived, um, I had always come in as a Westerner living, you know, or staying in Western hotels, and this was the first time I actually lived um, um, among Chinese, and it it became very apparent to me uh, immediately that I was operating with uh, moral values that were simply not shared um, and I found it both confusing and also quite interesting that I, as a Westerner, um, was surrounded with, with people uh, uh, who were uh, predominantly decent and who, who simply didn't share my, my values. And it, and it prompted me to, to wonder further whether my moral values, in fact, were continued to be applicable or pertinent in my own country. And that is what um, actually... Um, encouraged me to think of exploring it further and and writing a book about it so that uh, that's a long-winded explanation of of how I got to where I am now that does not include the fact that I raised a son that I have worked um you know, in, in various venues where I feel as though I've contributed something back in addition to creating jobs, but something back to the larger benefit of the of, of, of the world. Um, I sit on the board of Relief International. I feel it's my civic duty in my best efforts to contribute, um, you know, to, to uh, you know, to the better um, the better aspects of, of humanity. And, and, exactly. And, so, when, uh, when you were with um, the East-West Institute and doing so much traveling, did you see as much difference in your values and the values in other countries as you did when you were in China, you know, so, so that you had a larger um, database to draw from? Or well, yes. There, well, there is a di- I mean, I think perhaps it might be helpful to, to underscore the difference between morality and ethics. So and that is... Morale- yeah, the, and put one more in there because you know I like to de- identify terms when we're talking about something spe- as specific as morality and ethics, but throw mores in there as well. Morality, yes, let's yes, do some defining yes. of terms. Absolutely, your way, right. the way you use them in your book. Yeah, so morality is a personal set of beliefs, and ethics is expressed in the expectations and and the and the sanctions defined and enforced by a given culture or society within a given period of time, within a time frame, and um, frequently ethics and morality come into total contradiction. So, and and this is where it gets slightly co- complicated. But for example, a lawyer's ethical obligation is to defend to the best of his or her. Ability a client, even though what that person has done uh, can offend the, the lawyer's own moral sense. Um, a, mores are rather more, I wouldn't call them uh, superficial, but they reside on the surface of, and they speak on behalf of, uh, of a custom. 
So uh, on the other hand, it can move very quickly into an ethical norm. So for example, you know, when I did business in um, Abu Dhabi, I knew to cover my arms and um, certainly cover my head, um, cover my legs, co- basically cover all of me. Cover up, yeah. <laughs> um, and most especially if I was in a mosque or, um, and, and, and so that, that I was respecting the mores of that, of that particular region. However, if I moved not very far away in another re- region, those mores, in fact, were ethical um, ethically enforced. And so women, in fact, could be punished severely for not following, you know, that the customary um, uh, habit or, or expectation of covering themselves. So one thing can beget another. But I would say from a Western perspective, mores are, are you know, the kind of the social customs um, of a, of a given society. And a morality is what you expect of yourself. And it's the inner voice telling you that even though something is legal, it's wrong, um, or you believe it's wrong. And ethics, as I said, are, are the expectations of a society and what people expect of you within that given society and within a period of t- a, a given period of time. So the, the point is that um, most would agree now that we're living in in morally changing times in America, and because things that were once un, unheard of have not only become conceivable but now are are acceptable. Absolutely. Are you seeing this in other countries as well, or are we at the forefront of all of this change? Well, I think it feels, uh, you know, most especially in America, as though we were smacks in the middle of it all, and 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 it and and I think that, but I think that there are certain um, uh, challenges that are shared in the West. So uh, one would say um, accurately that that the, the there is a certain sentiment that has occurred. In, in the UK, for example, that, that prompted um, the, the Brexit vote. And that sentiment has to do with um, a concern that, you know, the core values, the core English values are being overwhelmed by um, uh, the immigration or, um, you know, a, a, a shift in, in culture. And, um, and that certainly uh, ha- has largely to do with the, the popularity that, um, that swept, um, or I shouldn't say swept, it kind of it moved him inch by inch into the White House. Uh, this is um, Donald Trump. And uh, on the other hand, you see what, what you see it incur- in an encouraging sense is that um, the recent votes in, in the, vo- the presidential vote in France is a, a reminder that, that people can move towards hope rather than um, somehow reside, you know, in anger and fear. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens there. I, I'm hoping very much he, uh, you know, uh, can turn it around because the alternative is more um, more uh, of a state of um, resistance towards any change, and um, you know the idea that you are uh, isolate yourself, and, and I think that's quite dangerous, regardless of your nationality. Oh, I I couldn't agree more. And, and just as an overview, before we really get into it, do you think it's getting better, it's getting worse, or is it just getting different? Um, do you, are you speaking of morality in general? Morality in general, globally. Yes. yes. Well, I think that I mean the the certainly from the perspective of the old guard, it feels as though it's it's on a slide, you know, down. Um, but I think that certainly the impression that I had as a result of researching and studying it and writing about it for a year, where I did nothing but but that, quite honestly, um, I came to the conclusion that although it's Foreign to me, I, 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 the, the fact is that it's a morality that's more flexible. So, for example, I'm coming at it much the way 
I was taught mathematics where I memorized tab- multiple tables, you know, tables. Yes. And, and, but, and, but the young, a younger generation is wondering why I would be moving myself towards that obligation or, or through that, you know, that task when you can very easily reach for a um, calculator. Exactly. Um, and, and I think that's the difference. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a different, more flexible um, some would say poorest take on morality. And on that note, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get in to more of the new morality in politics, sex, and business. So stay tuned for more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you or somebody you love have a struggle with abuse? You don't need to be a slave to your abuse anymore. Listen for Beyond Abuse, Beyond Therapy, Beyond Anything with Dr. Lisa Cooney. Dr. Lisa overcame struggles in her own life. Two decades of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse nearly took their toll. In her 20s, she turned her life around and set upon a path to help others. She can help you find the key to take control of your life, too. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the Self Improvement Blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. Our guest today is Eden Collinsworth, who's the author of Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business. I encourage you at the next break to get this book. Eden, you did some extensive research for this book. I was, I can't tell you how impressed I was with all of your trips back and forth uh, from from London to the United States and several places in the United States as well as other um, countries to interview people. I, I wondered how you found all these remarkable people. But my real question is, in doing this vast research that you did, was there anything that you found that really was a surprise to you? Well, there were... There, uh, there were various um, research papers and studies um, that had findings that surprised me. Um, one, for example, was it actually were, was this group of Swedish economists of all all people who um, who who described vividly the fact that after doing a great deal of research and, and basically looking at the numbers, um, men did not necessarily give um, uh, their spaces on, uh, you know, on, on um, rescue boats to, to, <laughs> at sea to, to women and children. So I just thought, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what, 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 I mean, what, what's that all about? Um, and, and they looked at the survival rate. And so, I, I, so things like that surprised me. There were things actually that didn't surprise me, even though 
I because I suspected as much, but it's always kind of sobering to see it in print. So, for example, if you talk about the sexual attitude or or mores uh, in America, um, you know the fact is that some. I don't know, 15, between 15 and 20% of married men have had affairs um, between 11 and 15% of women. And yet uh, 90%, over 90%, I think it was 92% of Americans feel that um, being unfaithful is immoral. So, you you know, you, you often, it, it, the numbers surprised me, but it somehow underscores the suspicion that we all have that what we say and what we do are often two separate things. I think to, to answer your question in a more weighty way, um, the, the, the interview that I had that surprised me was the most compelling and the most challenging for me and it was with somebody who had murdered not one but two people mm. and and I I was extremely uncomfortable with the idea frankly of even s- sitting with this man but during the course of listening to his story and many times people's personal stories are so much more remarkable than you can ever frankly imagine in in a novel or you can't make it up in fiction, frankly. And, and this was one of those cases where this man, not that this was any justification whatsoever, but he had a hopeless childhood. He was, had, his mother was killed. His father was a violent alcoholic who beat him. He ran away when he was eight and, and he started to steal immediately. And that's all he knew. And he became, um, slightly more sophisticated when he, you know, uh, then joined a group of older um, boys who who burglarized. And um, there was a point at which somebody had came, came home unexpectedly and, and he strangled uh, that man. And then three months later, he bludgeoned somebody uh, over the head with a rock. Um, and, and the point, it was, it was for, for money. And so um, he left, uh, neither of these two crimes were pinned to him, Um, uh, but he had a a passport, which I'm not quite sure how, but he did have a passport, and he got out of the country and uh, went to France and joined the Foreign Legion, where you could disappear, um, you know, and with a with a, actually another identification. And during the course of the five or six years he was in the Foreign Legion, he became a great leader of men. And his point to me was that for the first time in his life, he was given the wherewithal to acquire uh, uh, scruples. And those scruples then allowed him to begin to understand what he had what the immorality of what he had done and in a way that was kind of staggering um he had no there was no immediate need or cause to give himself up but but because he felt that it was the right thing to do that is precisely what he did and so in that instance he became a moral agent so to speak when he made that decision he didn't have to do it he could have simply you know, stayed in the Foreign Legion or stayed in, in, you know, in Africa where they sent him or even in France and disappeared. He was not, he was not, as I said, he wasn't accused of these murders. They were, they remained unsolved. So the idea that he stepped forward, he gave himself up, um, allowed him that identification of a moral person. And then he also accepted the consequences of what he did which was the moral thing to have done, and that the consequences were, was, the, you know, a, 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 um, he was sent to prison for 23 years, the first year of which was in solitary confinement. Um, and so he spoke of redemption, not in a atmospheric way, but in a way that I understood for the first time, that this was a struggle. It was a struggle to have changed his life, that nothing could justify what he did, but all that was left was for him to be the best person he could be. And that that was, I thought, compelling. It was actually heartbreaking um, for me, but it was, it was also surprising. Well, you know, you know what? I had the same reaction to that story, and and it still uh, it haunts me is not a good term to, mm-hmm. for it, but it it 
affected me, and I wrote this down that is one of his quotes, I might have had a moral capacity, but I didn't have the courage or character. It wasn't until I was in the Foreign Legion that I began to understand what morals were. Yes. And I'm thinking of all the children in, in our societies, both here and abroad, that mm-hmm. are homeless, that have no one to guide them, mm-hmm. forage for everything they can possibly get, mm-hmm. get in situations that are almost impossible for a young person, mm-hmm. and yet we expect them to end up somehow <clears throat> morally able, morally yeah. equipped, and yes. how can they possibly well, they can't. And, 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 and let me um, reiterate the fact that at no time did he, did this man try to justify the horrific crimes that he had committed. He took away two lives, and, 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 and obviously those two lives were connected with so many other lies. So, lives. so he, he, there was nothing that justifies it, including his background. That said, um, he, it was made very clear to me that all he knew was a certain way of life. I asked him, did you know at the, at the age of eight or nine when you began to steal that it was wrong? And he said not. He said that, that he knew that what he was stealing didn't belong to him. But, but as he continued to do it, that's, what he, that's what, how he thought of himself. He, he knew he was somebody who, who stole. And, um, and so that was how he identified himself to himself. And I think that, you know, it, it, this was a situation where he, this man had a hopeless background, and yet he, he managed to acquire a moral sense on his own, and some part of it came from the rigor of, you know, a, the, the discipline of being in a schedule with a group of people. In other words, all of those things that he didn't have, he was then, the, the Foreign Legion provided for him, and and that allowed him to build character. And that was the chapter with, you know, the, the, the challenge to write this book because there's so much to discuss and grapple with, and I've, I've got to say that I don't have... You know, I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a moral. Um, you know, I, I'm not a moralist. I don't have advanced degrees in this field, um, and so I thought the, the and there's there's so much to to explore. I deliberately siloed it in various categories. So it's politics, business, and sex. But within under those umbrellas, each chapter there there were several chapters. You know, to, to those siloed themes, and I chose for each chapter a theme. Um, that would speak on behalf of that larger issue. And I would look for people to interview who were almost antithetical to what you would think that theme would render. And so when I was grappling with the issue of, you know, whether there was a correlation between character and morality, I was, I, you know, I, I happened upon um, this this man um, through uh, various contacts, and I thought, well, this is actually quite interesting because who you couldn't imagine uh, this person speaking on behalf of character, and yet he did in a very compelling and meaningful way. It was quite profound, actually. Well, mm. And this brings me to another question. How did you formulate your questions? How did you know where you wanted to head with this book? Had you outlined it ahead of time, or did it evolve? Yes, I did. I, I you know, with my last two books, um, including this, I, I've written extremely thorough and complete proposals, and I've been fortunate in that the proposals were sold to, you know, of a, a, a wonderful editor in Nantalese, who's at Doubleday, which is part of Random House, and and so what happens to me is that I'm then given a deadline, <laughs> which yes. is slightly overwhelming. And I, and I, I brought the discipline that I have acquired during the course of a long and varied business career to the task of writing. And, and I, listen, it's, it, it is that, I mean, it is a task. It, you, you have to face it every day. Um, you have to write so many words. You have to make it look as though it's easy. And you have to create a story because as a book publisher and editor myself, I certainly am aware of the fact that nobody's obliged to turn the page. And so with this, especially this book, I wanted to create 
a story where you really did want the reader did want to come along on my journey to 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 you know to sort through the implications of the new morality and and so what i did was i you know outlined this uh, my approach very vividly and i don't know what it must have been a 40 page proposal and then i started to think well who who would i interview in each of these chapters and 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 i started to ask around i sent emails out i one thing led to another and i had a general sense of what i wanted to ask for uh, because that it, it fell under the rubric of the chapter so in this particular case with this man i knew that i wanted to discuss character i had no idea where it would lead me um and 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 so, you know, that, that's how I, I, I handled everything else. Now, I must tell you that because this book, because it, it, the publisher recognized the fact that this was such a timely topic, I, the, the book was moved forward by five months. And so <laughs> it, it is timely. In, in the fall. So I was, I was under even more of a deadline. And, uh, but I, and quite honestly, I think the issue will still be germane in the fall and beyond. But I, oh, think, I think people so. are feeling more and more that we live in very uncertain times, but there is a certainty in that um, in one uh, aspect, and that is, that the morality is kind of up for grabs. So, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate the fact that the publisher wanted it out sooner rather than later. Well, and I think it drives home the fact that we're each responsible for our, our own belief system and our own choices, mm-hmm. and we better pay attention. You give a really good history of the development of, of morality and of ethics. And you ask the question, and, and you know, what a great question. Might it then mean, this is after you, when you're summarizing all that has happened in history, might it then mean that what we call ethics began as the agendas of those in control and the concept of moral values was really power in disguise? What do you, how would you answer that now? Well, I think that that's true in every sense of the word. Yeah. You know, I, I don't mean to it sounds cynical, but I, I'm, uh, you know, you think of it as uh, asp- in morality as aspirational, but then you, as you begin to work your way through the topic and you speak to more and more people and you read, read about morality, uh, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, uh, you realize that institutionally, if you look at the church or, you know, any number of politics, it's, it is very much about power and whether it's the church's uh, insistence that, you know, that uh, there, there be a certain kind of, uh, you know, a heterosexual kind of control panel of of sex, you know, and you realize, well, I don't know, you know, that's not, no longer holds as much credence. I mean, if you look at um, Ireland the last year, it's predominantly Catholic, and yet they were the first country to, 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 to vote in um, the legality of gay marriage. So the point is that the, the, but you, you look at the institutions and yes, I believe that in fact, they have window dressed (laughs) Oh yeah, the definition of morality for their own purposes, and and what's happened to the 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 younger generation? My son is in his twenties, and I consider him utterly decent. Um, but he his sense of morality is not necessarily instilled in me as much as it has been shaped by the changes in his lifetime, and those changes are. The result of these technological advances that most of us don't even understand, frankly. Um, but but the fact is that um, he he has a you know to to repeat myself he has a more as does his generation a far more flexible um, attitude towards morality and he doesn't necessarily give uh, the same credence to uh, you know the institutional. Um, uh, definition. So, for example, you know, they have a that generation has a broader landscape of where they look for moral, you know, reference points. So they will go to, you know, frankly, um, you know, social media, social media, and, you know, sports, sports figures, celebrities, 
uh, possibly politicians, but not so much. Uh, they might be spiritual, but not religious. So th- there, there is a there, there is a far more uh, broadly based uh, landscape rather than the kind of institutional, you know, uh, silos that uh, you know the old guard operates in in terms of a moral a moral sense. And on that note, it's about time to go to break. So I want to ask you this question to think about and have our listeners think about as well as we go to break. Knowing what's going on in politics and business and even in sexuality, do you see a way to turn the tide and return to some kind of moral integrity? Or is greed and the other things, but especially greed, is greed (laughs) going to win? Mm. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more with Eden Collinsworth. So stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are with host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the self improvement blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the self improvement show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the self improvement show. Today, we're having a wonderful conversation with Eden Collinsworth, who's the, the author of the newly released Behaving Badly The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business. I hope over the break. Hey, you went to Amazon and got the book. It's a great read. I'm going to reiterate the question. Knowing what's going on in politics and business, do you see a way to turn the tide and return to some semblance of moral integrity, or is greed going to win? Maybe not a good question. But. Yes, well, it's it's an important one, uh, and I can't claim to have the answer. But I think that um, greed, especially around money, is uh, will inevitably win the day. And unfortunately, you see over and over again. You most especially if you look at the research that people are more likely to be empathetic when money isn't involved. As soon as there's money involved. Mm. Uh, you know that it, not so much anymore, especially. Um, also, what you're seeing is a unbridled um, opportunity for greed. So, you know, greed will always be around, even though it's one of the seven deadly sins. Um, the fact is that, you know, quite honestly, Western 
um, capitalism depends upon greed to a, to a, a large degree um, to generate more and more of a profit margin, which is the, the purpose. I mean, certainly as somebody in business, um, you, you learn very quickly that the obligation is to return um, a profit towards the company and the shareholders. Um, but the, the point, I guess my point is that in order for, for the world to be improved, um, greed, um, the, the, greed has to somehow um, modify itself because the, the social responsibility it is not is a moral issue, not not a not a financial one. So ideally, individuals should be accountable for fulfilling a civic duty um, with actions that benefit the, the the greater good. But but this requires a balance between economic growth and the welfare of not only mankind but also the environment, and and that would require us to be less greedy. So, I, if you look at people's behavior, it doesn't. I mean, I've worked you know, globally. And quite honestly, people are people. So it doesn't even have to do necessarily with the culture. If you look at the scandals, you know, that had to do with the automobile admissions. Oh, yeah. Where they were, it, it was across the board. It was the Germans, the Japanese, the Americans. So I, it's not It's not as though there's one particular culture that has, uh, you know, that has, you know, that somehow is more or less greedy than the other. It's, it's simply humankind. Um, I think what's happened is that there, there has always been greed, but in the financial markets, what, what has allowed it to run riot, so to speak, is the fact that there is now leverage. So, you know, it used to be that money was made and, uh, you know, from efforts and, you know, was the result of efforts or, you know, an exchange of goods that had a value. And now money, and this all has to do with technology, which are, really are driving these profound changes. Um, now money can be made from money in, 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 in split seconds with, with technology yeah. that most of us don't uh, have access to. And so here you have a situation where people are amassing vast amounts of money and not really creating anything. They're not creating jobs. They're not creating things. Um, and I, I, I think that that has to be grappled with. It's The fact is that there is now more of an income gap than there ever has been before. And what it's done is it's it's gutted the middle class, and I think that you know Americans, especially, they've lost their jobs, they've oh, lost yeah. their confidence. I, along you know, with my colleagues and and the, the people I know, have it have enjoyed the benefits of globalization, but I'm not unaware of the fact that there are many people who have not, who in fact have not only benefited but but have fallen victim to it and 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 they're angry they they you know i think for the first time ever the feeling is that you know uh, one generation has not provided opportunity or more opportunity uh, in in america to their children and no, that and it, i think that's polarized people terribly first economically but now culturally so things are very very skewed there's a, there's something that I really want to ask you about. I, I wish we had so much more time. Um, but this one really struck me, and it's something that I've been paying attention to. I've written a few articles about it on the blog. In your chapter, Celebrities as Standard Bearers, and, and I think the whole celebrity thing is just an interesting thing to watch. Mm-hmm. You talk about celebrities and branding and these sort of things, and you use the phrase real people, and I hear it more and more these days. You stated, so the chance to be real is with the opportunity to be fake. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Who who are the real people? You know, th- that's the question I always have. Who are the real people? The- well, they're not they're not necessarily depicting themselves, you know, or branding themselves on social media. So, I mean, and that and that's, I mean, that again is part and parcel of the of the of the surge and the power uh, of the internet. Yes. You know, the internet. We we all we all feel as though the internet is this kind of extremely atmospheric. Now, it's a given where it's simply part of your life. The fact is that there are very few extremely rich uh, techno, tech, 
tech companies that in fact are generating profit from the internet. I mean, it is a business after all. But And so uh, when you look at the Kardashians or any number of people, I mean, they're now Instagram, you know, celebrities, uh, they, you know, it's a highly curated depiction of uh, someone or something. And that is what is being sold to the public. And I mean, now there's, you know, a great deal of research and studies that indicate that, you know, here we are, never have we been more interconnected, and yet we feel more and more isolated and and less and less secure because it's a very comparative uh, world where you are can't help but compare yourself to the very attractive, happy depictions of people, whether it's, uh, you know, on Facebook or um, elsewhere, and and you know it's a it's a very peculiar dichotomy. Well, it's a it's a strange climate because the people that I hear asking the questions mm-hmm. are the people who have the biggest names or the biggest presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 movie starlets primarily are saying, you know, well, real people do such and such, and I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay, who who are who are the real people? Are we them and us? You know, is yes, this a struggle yes. between them and us? What's going on here? Yes, I, yes. I find it to be a little alarming. Uh, I, it's, 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 it is, it sets up a kind of parallel universe. So one of the people I interviewed for the book is a, was an artist by the name of Allison Jackson. And she um, actually has created, uh, f- you know, photo images or, or settings of people who look very much like celebrities, but who are yes. not. She deliberately puts them in, you know, humorous or provocative poses. And and she told me, she actually showed me a, a video where she was in Japan. It could have been anywhere, but she, she was in Japan. It was a mall. And, um, the, and Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, Lookalikes. In other words, everyone knew they were. These were not the real celebrities, but they were people who looked like them. Came into this mall, and there was just a riot of activity where their people were snapping pictures, and they were, you know, swooning, and and so so. And and she told me, in fact, you know, many times there are women who make themselves, you know, it, make it very clear that they are sexually available available to the men who look like celebrities. Yeah. So it's just it's a very weird situation where it's celebrity for celebrity uh, sake and it doesn't even you know require you to believe that the person is a celebrity you, it could be a faux celebrity and you're and so that that becomes very odd where literally the the media is driving um, you know a, a mindset and you see that now I mean my a great deal of my own career has been in what is now referred to as traditional or mainstream media. Um, and admittedly, I'm not entirely trusting of a public technology as a news source, but uh, Donald Trump has embraced it and his tweets have managed to circumvent mainstream media and, and, and most especially its fact-checking process. And that has enabled his pattern of stating falsehoods as facts. And so the question becomes, I mean, for me, the word lie conveys not only a factual judgment, but also a moral one. So is it the obligation of a free press to trust the public's judgment uh, in terms of identifying that lie? Or is it the obligation of the press to, to present judgment to them? In other words, you know, a lie is a lie is a lie, as far as I'm concerned, by not um, making it very clear that uh, something is a lie, we we then uh, possibly normalize the lie by not not calling it out. And so, I mean, it, and this all has to do with these technological changes where someone can address whether it's a celebrity or the president of the United States can go right to the public. Exactly, with 120 characters and make a statement that, Nobody really knows, you know, whether it's true or not. And well, he's not the. I mean, he's not the only one. No, absolutely right. No, absolutely right. And what what happens is that social media now is is uh, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, it is now the gateway to news that seventy percent of Americans, at any rate, employ. 
And there is no fact-checking. There is no, in other words, attribution is the same. It doesn't matter whether it's the New York Times or somebody, you know, who's, um, you know, writing a manifesto in a cave someplace. <laughs> Just, yeah. You know, it's the same. It's the same. It's all the same. And and so, and I don't know whether one begot the other. In other words, there are more and more people are rather suspicious of experts, but so I don't know whether that that's been you know you know uh, the facts have been somehow marginalized as a result or or technology has allowed because you can convey your opinion as fact in you know so so few characters and it goes out to the public. In other words, one thing I think you know provides access to the other. I just don't know where it starts and ends. And I don't think anybody does. Uh, and you know, I. Yeah, I think each of us has a responsibility to put some semblance of truth out there, but I, how do you police it? We're getting really close to the end of the show. I'm so sorry to say that. Oh, well. <laughs> you know, has, ri- has writing this book changed your own thinking about morality in any well, way? No, it hasn't changed my, it has not changed my moral values, but it has enabled me to understand that those moral values are now perhaps too rigid for the current generation. I mean, you, and so I, I can't ignore that. And, um, and, I, and what's going to be interesting is that no matter what the politicians promise, nothing is going to stem the churn of humanity. So no. more and more and more, we will have to, we are cheek by jowl, um, you know, with people who don't share our values. And so we will more and more and more be obliged to um, understand that we, you know, there are people who have different moral values than us and, and we will have to, uh, def- we will have to know when to defend ours and know then when to step away and understand that um, ours are not the only moral values that are applicable. Now, I usually end by saying, what's your thought that you want to leave with our listeners today? And I think you just did, mm, that we need I, to be open and understanding, accepting of other people in a more non-judgmental way. Mm. Well, I can, I'll leave you with this. You know, there was an attack uh, here in London uh, several weeks ago, and um and and it happened at a quarter of three. It was all all of it took all of two minutes, um, you know, for this horrendous act to unfold. And by rush hour, which was five thirty, there was an enormous sign placed above all the turnstiles in the subways or the metros they call them here, uh, the tubes, and uh, to remind people that their moral obligation was to 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 not fall back on prejudice. And it was it was there were four words, and it was. Um, it was no, no them, only us. Oh, nice. On that note, we're going to have to say goodbye. Eden, thank you so much for being with us today. It, it was my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's uh, something that I hope everybody has a chance to hear, and I hope everybody gets your book. This thank is you. Irene Conlon with my guest, Eden Collins. We're saying thank you so much for being with us today. Come back. Again next week for more of the Self-Improvement Show. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here.